Exodus 7:14 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, who refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. The next reading is from Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt, from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on people and animals, on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky 
the Lord sent thunder and hail, and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Well, please do keep uh, your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at a number of passages in uh, this area of Exodus. Chapters 7 to 10, we're doing a kind of bigger part of the book today. Let's get sorted here. Okay. Well, I recently had a conversation with some friends um, about the impact of COVID. Remember COVID? The glory days, eh? The good times. Um, Our friends were talking about the impact that COVID had had um, on their family Um, And one particular impact was on um, her son, who is currently at university. And um, at the moment, he's struggling a little bit at uni, um, has some mental health difficulties, I think, struggling to make friends, to connect with others. And he's trying to figure out, well, why is this the case? Like, what's wrong with me? What's happened? And his mum has been saying to him, well, you know, remember what sixth form was like. You know, at sixth form, you were in classes where you were two meters apart from people, You couldn't really interact. You had a mask on. The ability to socialize um, was not what it should be at a real crucial time of someone's development. Of course, that's going to have an impact, isn't it? It's going to have an impact. And our friends also talked about the impact in their church on COVID. So they work for a church. They're on staff at a church. And they said how, they talked about how during the lockdowns and when there were rules being given, um, you had different groups in the church who had different approaches to the rules. Does this sound familiar? So there were some who would want to be able to keep all of the rules to to the letter. Um, Others who wanted to keep the rules in the spirit of things, but might not feel like they were bound to keep every little um, aspect of it. And then my friends were caught in the middle, and there were tensions between the two groups. Um, not, Not a happy time. And so there were all sorts of difficulties, and some more severe for some of us um, in COVID. And one of the things as I was chatting with these friends is they talked about the Partygate scandal. Do you remember the Partygate scandal? So there were these parties that were happening in Number 10 Downing Street, where the very people who had come up with these laws and were expecting the country to uphold them were having these gatherings that weren't keeping any of the laws. Um, they weren't keeping their letter or the spirit of the laws, but were just breaking them. Politicians and their servants partying in crowded rooms whilst they expected the rest of the country to keep lockdown rules. And, and my friends were talking about just how cross they were, how angry they were at that. And I think a lot of people in our nation felt that. There was something quite strong, collective anger. And it was the hypocrisy, I think, for most people that, found, that they found so just hard about seeing this, the hypocrisy, those who are giving rules, not keeping them themselves. And a lot of people wanted those who were in charge to be held held to account, particularly Boris Johnson. Now, our culture has a keen sense of justice. 
a keen sense of justice. And that is particularly the case when it comes to people who have authority and power and yet misuse it. We talk a lot about abuse of power. And Partygate is just one example, and perhaps a relatively minor example compared to many um, instances of abuse of power that we see in our culture, in our worlds. We see it in corrupt governments, don't we? We see it in the police force. Um, We see it um, in workplaces. We see it in celebrities. Um, We even see it, tragically, at times in the church itself, where people with power and influence use that in a way that doesn't lead to the people under their care flourishing, but actually results in their harm. And when we see this happen, we want a reckoning, don't we? we? We can't just let stuff like this happen. Like, there has to be some sort of reckoning. We see injustice, and we want something done about it. Well, this passage today, um, and Exodus in, in general, it, is in the context of gross injustice, isn't it? Slavery. Slavery of the Israelite people by the Egyptians. And we're looking at this passage that's uh, the famous ten plagues of, uh, on Egypt by God. And what we're going to see today is that God has a keen sense of justice. He cares. And an important part of the Christian faith and something that we must take very seriously is that he will hold everyone to account. No matter how rich or powerful or influential they are. This is a message we need to hear today. So let's look at these, these plagues, these, these chapters in Exodus. So firstly, the, um, the nature of the plagues. So recap of the scene. So the Israelite nation has been enslaved by Egypt. Um, Egypt has oppressed them and even committed genocidal acts against the Israelites. Uh, Israel is God's people. God has appeared to one Israelite, Moses, and he has said that he has heard that the Israelites are in trouble. He's heard their cries and prayers, and he's going to do something to save them. He has revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. That is God's name, shortened to the Lord. That's how he's to be called. And the Lord commissions Moses and his brother Aaron to be his servants. And Moses and Aaron are to go before the king of Egypt himself, Pharaoh. They're to go to him and they are to say to him on behalf of God, let Israel go. Enough with the slavery. You're to let them go so that they may serve me. And we saw last week, Moses wasn't particularly keen on doing this job. And yet after much patience from God, he does go. He meets Aaron And he goes before Pharaoh. So we didn't read chapter 5, but that is the first point where Moses and Aaron, they actually go back to Egypt. They go before Pharaoh, and they tell him to let the people go, and Pharaoh refuses. And so in these chapters, we see God's response to that. God sends plagues, plagues on Egypt. And by plagues, what what these are are supernatural signs that afflict the Egyptians in various ways, in escalating ways. So if you read chapters 7 to 10, you have a recurring pattern. What happens is Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. They tell him to let the people go. Pharaoh refuses. And so what happens is God, through Moses, sends a plague. The plague happens for a while. Pharaoh asks for it to stop. He sometimes even feigns some sort of repentance or a sorry. The plague stops. 
but he still refuses to let the people go. And so another plague comes. This happens multiple times. And there are 10 plagues in total up there on the screen. So throughout chapter 7 to 10. So the first uh, plague, chapter 7, is that the Nile, with the main river that goes through Egypt, it is turned to blood. The second is that there is an infestation of frogs, which sounds pretty yucky. The third is that there are gnats or lice that get in people's hair and on their skin, also pretty nasty. The fourth plague is one of flies. Uh, by the fifth, it becomes more deadly. So there are death, there's the widespread death of Egyptian livestock. Um, this is chapter 9. Then you get um, boils, kind of sores that break out on people's skin, on the Egyptian skin. Then the seventh is hail, which we read about in our, in our reading. This is deadly hail, which is able to kill anyone who's left outside, man and beast. It also destroys the crops, and then the, but not all the crops, but by the time the locusts come, the eighth plague, all the crops are destroyed. They eat them all. It's an agricultural disaster for Egypt. Then there is a plague of darkness for three days. And that would have had particular significance to the Egyptians who worshipped Ra, the sun god. And then finally, and most severely, the death of all firstborn sons in Egypt. We're going to look more at that plague, um, that final one next week. That's chapter 11. So there's an escalation in these plagues that come to Egypt. They become more severe so what, become, what starts as an inconvenience becomes deadly. But if you think about the plagues as a whole, there's a, there's a sort of movement, a flow to them, um, which gradually takes up all of Egyptian, their, their world, as it were. So it, just think about it. So it starts in the Nile, okay? It's localized to a river. But then it breaks out of the river through frogs, which come through the Nile, onto land. So then it's on land, but then after land, it gets into people and animals with the gnats, and, the, and, and then it gets wings. So it takes to the air with flies. It then starts affecting the actual bodies of people and animals on Egypt. So people get sores and boils, um, the animals die. But then right from the air, it actually it heads up to the skies. All of a sudden, hail comes down from above. Darkness, the heavenly lights themselves stop shining. From floor to ceiling, over time, all of reality for the Egyptians starts to corrupt. It starts to decay like rotten fruit. It must have been terrifying. Well, it is. If you look at, flick forward to chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh, throughout this whole process, he remains stubborn. He doesn't let the people go. But the Egyptians are begging him to just relent. Verse 7, do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? That's what Pharaoh's servants say to him. And if you look back at verse 2, even God knows that this is harsh. You see that verse 2? He recognizes that he has dealt harshly with Egypt. Now that's not harsh as in unfair, but harsh as in severe. This is very serious. So that's the nature of the plagues. And so the question is really, you know, this is a God that we, as Christians, worship. So why does God want to send plagues on people? 
And what are his aims for doing so? So let's look at those, the reason for the plagues. Well, firstly, perhaps most intuitively, judgment. Um, Back in chapter 7, verse 4, God says this, I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. Egypt has committed crimes and the plagues are a way of bringing God's judgment to that nation. There's a fittingness to some of them. Have you thought about the Nile turning, turning to blood? Why would the Nile turn to blood? Why would that be the first plague? Well, where has the Nile been significant in the story so far? You may remember back in chapter 1 that when Egyptian oppression of Israel was at its height, baby boys who were Israelites were to be murdered by being thrown in the Nile and drowned. Isn't it fitting then that God, as a first judgment on Egypt, creates a sign by which the Egyptian river turns to blood? It's an expose on Egypt for its crimes. It's fitting because Egypt and the Nile have blood on its hands. So Egypt is being judged for its crimes. But it's not just crimes against the Israelites. Okay, there's a, they're obvious, aren't they? But there's a principle in the Bible. Whenever someone harms someone else, the, 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 the horizontal, kind of me towards you, one human towards another, that is always reflective of disconnection vertically, harm between us and God. And this is true with Egypt. Just flick to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. This is where Moses and Aaron first visit Pharaoh. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Do you see the link? Pharaoh knows who Ra is, he knows who Osiris is, he knows who Horus is, he doesn't know who the Lord is, and the point is, why should I care what the Lord thinks, whoever he is? To Pharaoh, the Lord is a nobody, and so he feels mighty fine about oppressing the Israelites. You see, there is a horizontal problem between Pharaoh and the Israelites, but there's a vertical problem first, he dishonors God. He sets himself up as God, essentially, and so feels free to oppress others. So in the United States, it is a crime to commit stolen valor. I don't know if you've heard of stolen valor. This is, what this is, is when you pretend to have been in military service when you haven't. So people do this sometimes. They dress up in military clothes Um, And they do so in public places in order to get respect from people or in order to get money from them as if they're veterans and need need the aid. This is illegal in the United States. If you go on YouTube and you um, search for stolen valor, you can see situations where real veterans or Marines clock people who are committing this um, and expose them for it. And the problem is, like, 
you can always spot someone um, who is committing stolen valor if you've really been in the military, because they don't tend to do things properly. So they put their badges in the wrong places on their uniform, or they say the sorts of things that no one who'd actually been in the military would really say. So they're easy to spot and pull out, but they're exposed. They're exposed in these videos. Why? Because they're taking an honor that isn't theirs to take. They've never served their country in combat. They've never risked their lives, and yet they want to claim the glory and honor that would be rightly deserved for someone who had done that. They're phonies. And in the same way, Pharaoh is kind of stolen honor from God. He acts, acts like he's in charge. He acts like the Lord is nothing. He can do what he wants. After all, he's the king of Egypt. He acts like God. And so the plagues and all that follows is a judgment from God on Egypt. Yes, for their crimes against Israel, but also for their sins against him. They have not acknowledged the Lord as the true God, and they have oppressed his people. And so the plagues serve as judgment. And the uncomfortable thing when we read the Bible is that it tells us that all of us are like Pharaoh. We have all stolen honor from God. The Lord is the one who is. He's created us. He's given us everything. And yet we don't give him what he deserves. We don't acknowledge his rule. Instead, what we do is we don't put on military clothes, per se, but we put on, as it were, royal clothes. We put a crown on our own heads. We think it fits quite well. We have this sense that we're in charge. I'll do what I like with my life. And the God who has made me and given me everything, I will not give to him what he deserves, and therefore I will not serve others as I should. We are a law to ourselves, self-appointed kings and queens. And by extension, we don't love others as we should either. We have both the vertical and the horizontal. Think of the ways that you don't live up to your own standards in terms of treating people. The ways you haven't loved those you actually care about. All of that is indicative of a, a vertical problem. The thing is, though, we find it hard to believe this because it's hard for us to spot and notice in ourselves. But just because we don't feel that keenly, it doesn't mean it's not there. Those of you who followed the news will have seen that Russell Brand has been in the news recently with allegations of sexual assault um, being laid against him. And, and these allegations have made a lot of people reevaluate his past comedy and his past actions, particularly in the, in the 2000s or the noughties as it's known. Now back in the noughties, Russell Brand was always controversial. Uh, perhaps most infamously was uh, a moment in 2008 where he was recording a radio show and um, as he was recording that show, he and Jonathan Ross phoned up um, the actor Andrew Satch, who didn't pick up, and so they left a series of voice uh, messages on, on his um, voicemail. And on it, Russell Brand bragged about the fact that he had slept with Andrew Satch's granddaughter, um, Georgina Bailey. He left a series of pretty vile um, answer machine messages. And then they put all this out on radio. 
Now, it gained a huge amount of complaints at the time. Uh, BBC were in trouble about it. But what was interesting was there were also a lot of people, um, commentators, journalists, who thought this was a bit of a storm in a teacup. Now, they thought Russell Brand was being a bit of an idiot, for sure. But they thought that the uproar was just like hysteria, really. One prominent media figure on the left called complainers crybabies. And this wasn't uncommon. Now today, in light of recent allegations, people have been looking back, particularly journalists, have been looking back on that time and how they responded and are kind of cringing. So in The Guardian, um, the columnist Marina Hyde wrote a piece saying that she was mortified to see what she had written about this at the time it happened. And she had said that she thought that um, Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand had been, had been awful, but her main issue had been with those who had complained about it, rather than considering Georgina Bailey herself. In fact, she had said that Bailey should stop banging on about the whole thing. And this, of course, in a context where Russell Brand would take advantage of this situation. He would go on to joke about it night after night on his tour, making money from a ritual humiliation of this woman who he'd had a sexual relationship with. Now, today, we look back on the noughties and its lad culture. And we consider a lot of that unacceptable now. You know, those were the days of Nuts and Zoo magazine, page three models and hot or not ratings. And the point is that as a culture, we see we have blind spots to these things. What's interesting was a lot of the people who kind of dismissed the complaints about Russell Brand were, were people on the left who consider themselves very um, keenly aware of injustice in, in society, but it was a blind spot. And so the question is for us, what blind spots do we have? What are people going to say when they write a book about the 2020s? What have we missed now? You know, there are all sorts of issues that are big for us in culture at the moment, particularly the treatment of women, uh, the treatment of minority groups, the treatment of the environment. All of those are very important issues. But is there stuff we've missed? Are there things we're not as sensitive about now that we should be? And what if actually the corruption that we carry in ourselves is greater than we thought it was? The Bible says that there is injustice in each of our hearts. And it's so deep we haven't even begun to understand how serious it is. Not just about how we treat other people, though that is bad enough. But how we treat the God who's made us who sustains us moment by moment. Now the truth is, God is more passionate about goodness than we are. And so he wants to see flourishing in every area of life and every wrongdoing he will take very seriously. And so you don't have to be a sexual abuser or you don't have to have enslaved people to be reckoned with by God in his holy standards. All of us have corruption in our hearts. That's the Bible's claim. You know, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation picks up this theme of plagues, Revelation 15 and 16. It describes the future judgment of the earth in plague language. It talks about rivers turning to blood, frogs, darkness on the earth. And it's poetic language. 
picturing the fact that one day all of humanity will be reckoned with, all of us. And that judgment at the end of time will be serious. One day the Lord Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, will return to earth and judge the world. All injustice will be dealt with. But not just the injustice out there, but the injustice in here. One day the rivers will turn to blood again for each of us. All the sins that we've committed, all the wrong things will be exposed. The makeshift crowns that we've put on our heads, where we've stolen God's honor, will be shown for what they are. It will be no joke. It will be severe and even eternal. God will reckon with all injustice. So where does that leave us? Well, finally, there's another reason for the plagues. A reason that's actually perhaps more important than judgment. And it's this, revelation. What do I mean by that? God wants to reveal himself to others. He wants the world to know who he is. Did you notice that in our readings? Do you remember Pharaoh's question in chapter 5? Who is the Lord? Chapter 7 to 10 are like a big answer to that question. It's like God saying, I am the Lord. And that is his desire. Flick back to chapter 7. He wants Pharaoh and the Egyptians to know. So he says, chapter 7, verse 4, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So he wants Egypt to know. He actually wants the Israelites to know as well. So in chapter 10, verse 11, God says this to Moses, you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So the plagues are gonna make it onto the kids club curriculum. They're going on explorers for the Israelites. Because they need to know that God is the Lord. But not even that. He wants not just Israel, not just Egypt. He wants the entire world to know. It's going to go global. Look at chapter 9. Halfway through verse 13. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people. So you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see what God is saying? If he wanted, he could have wiped Egypt out like that. Not, no need to go into this whole plagues business. But instead, he has orchestrated the escalation of these plagues, even in Pharaoh, so that then he would show the whole earth his power and his name. Now, just a quick aside on Pharaoh's hard heart. This is often a question that comes up. We see in these chapters that the Bible describes Pharaoh as hardening his own heart. It also describes the Lord as hardening God's heart. And certainly in what we've just read, the emphasis seems to be on God's agency. He has raised Pharaoh up for this purpose. And the question is then, well, if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, how can he be held responsible? 
Isn't he not like a, a robot, a kind of puppet on a string? What, what chance has he got of being fairly judged in this sense? Now, there's a lot that could be said here. Uh, but in short, the Bible seems to uphold both God's complete control of all events and all people and our human responsibility. Pharaoh is held responsible for his actions. We are not robots. We are not treated like that. And yet God is in control in a mysterious way. How do those things fit together? I have no idea. But in some way, God seems to be able to know and control the events of the world while still upholding a real sense of agency, a real agency in his creatures. Anyway, regardless of all that philosophical discussion, we still have this question of God wanting to reveal himself and wanting to make his name known. So the question is why? Is God like the equivalent of your stereotypical gym bro who wants to flex his muscles and show off? I don't think so. Two reasons why God wants to make himself known. Firstly, because the Egyptians and the Israelites, if they don't know God, are deluded. The Egyptians don't know who God is. They worship all these other gods. They don't even know the one who made them. And if God shows himself and his power, it shows that the Egyptian religious system as it is is fraudulent. It shows that he is the true God. And they can know the one who made them. But more than that, the plagues are actually merciful. They're merciful, honest. Let me show you how. Just consider the fact that God does not, does not judge in one moment. He staggers out his judgments. It doesn't all happen at once. Which means there is a chance for people to take this information about who God is and do something with it. That is, they can come to him and find rescue. Do you see that in chapter 9 with the hail? Turn to chapter 9 if you're not there already. The Lord warns through Moses about the danger of the hail. And it says, verse 20, Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. God gives his word, and in this plague, the Egyptians can be spared. And this happens later as well. When Israel is freed from Egypt, it says a mixed multitude went with them. It wasn't just Israelites who left as part of God's people. There were others, presumably Egyptians as well. Egyptians who saw the plagues, they realized who the Lord was, and that meant that they found salvation by following him. They experienced rescue. So this is a huge reason why God sent the plagues. Believe it or not, he sent them so that people can experience rescue. It's the same is true today. Chapter 9, verse 16, God says that he raised up Pharaoh so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And that is true, to, that is true then, and that is true today. Why are we reading about the plagues today? Why are we hearing about it here, right now? It is so we would know that the Lord is God. And what are we meant to do with that information? 
We are meant to come to him humbly and ask for his forgiveness, and it will be given to us. It's available to us. We see his power, and we know what kind of being he is, but it gives us a chance to know him and turn to him for rescue. You see, the God of the Bible loves to show who he is to people. He did so in the plagues, but he did so most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this, John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus came to earth, God in human flesh, and ate and drank and lived amongst us so that we could know him. And yet he is the Lord. And he died and rose again so that we could find salvation in him, find rescue from this judgment that is coming. You know, we don't like the idea of a God who sends plagues, do we? It's all a bit primitive. But think about the alternative. What's the alternative? God doesn't send plagues. He doesn't write it down in the Bible for us to read. We just live life day by day, moment by moment, until the end of time, when God judges all injustice, and then we have no hope. We're given no opportunity to change. God did not have to send the plagues or send Jesus, but he did so that we would find rescue and hope from him. One of the things that's been noticed about our culture is that how keen it is on justice, but how hard it is to offer forgiveness Where is the restoration and forgiveness for people like Russell Brand? What about those who have tweeted stupid, offensive things five years ago and then have it ritually dug up and thrown in their face that they're constantly in shame? What restoration is there for people like that? How do those who have done horrendous things in the past find any sense of hope or restoration? Our culture, I don't think, has the answers. But in the gospel, there are answers. There is forgiveness available through Jesus. Jesus is like the shelter from the hailstorm. He calls us to to come to him and, and find rescue. And that's available for each of us today. For those of us who are Christians, it's good to remind ourselves, what is it we've been saved from? Think again on what it is our hearts are like, how how easily we we run away from God, how easily we put that crown on our heads and steal honor, and how easily we hurt other people and harm them. May that be a reminder to you. Remember what you've been saved from. And for those of us who are not yet trusting in Jesus, it's a call to you as well. You can find rescue Jesus is the way we can be rescued from a God who will serve perfect justice. Let's pray.